Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, American POW MIA's podcast. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Bear. Welcome to today's Story of Sacrifice. Our last episode was about the Baron 52 EC-47 crash over Laos on 5 February 1973. We interviewed the brother of Sergeant Joseph Machoff and gained a lot of valuable information about the shoot-down and intercepted radio transmission from the Vietnamese that stated there were four captured pirates. This message was intercepted over five hours after Baron 52 reported it was taking AAA fire. We then heard about the rescue and recovery attempts online February 1973, four days after the crash by the Jolly Green. The 1993 Joint Task Force Full Accounting Recovery Operation that produced a few bone fragments and a tooth. These remains were then given a group burial at Arlington National Cemetery to account for all eight men aboard. If you have not listened to that episode yet, please go back and do that now. Over the last several weeks, the Machaw family has shared additional documents with me, along with additional research that I have done. We have decided to do additional episodes of the Baron 52 story and bring you interviews with people that have been involved in this case from the beginning. On today's episode, you will be hearing the August 1992 Senate Select Committee investigation on POWMIAs from the Vietnam War. Senators Bob Smith... John Kerry and John McCain are questioning members of the Defense Intelligence Agency Office of the POWMIA. If you have been to committees and, and members of Congress in the past on information, and, and, I, and I, with, this, with this incident, this is the EC-47, which I mentioned uh, to Mr. DeStott yesterday, it, it just seems to me to be symbolic of the problems that we face as we try to understand your analysis of all of these sightings that we've gotten to. And let me just quickly run run through this and ask for a response. On 5 February 1973, an EC-47 twin-engine electronic surveillance aircraft was shot down while on intelligence collection mission over Laos. As you know, that was after the Paris Peace Accords. The aircraft, aircraft cra- uh, crashed, uh, placing it south of DMZ in Laos, not far from Dok Chung and the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This is just for background. This the is Senator Bob is Smith. to have a crew of eight. Four days after the crash on 9 February 73, a search and rescue team recovered bodies, four of them. Hostile ground forces prevented, <clears throat> com- 
excuse me, a complete inspection of the site and nearby area, and four men were never found and remain missing to this day. Our information is, based on the individual uh, who was at the site and the, with the rescue uh, paramedic rescue uh, operation, is that no parachutes were found in the rear of the aircraft and that the rear seat belts were unbuckled. These facts suggest, not definite, but suggest that some of the crew may have bailed out. We've never been back to the crash site in the last 19 years. Um, we've not been there. So what's in the intelligence? What do we have on the record in the intelligence? And I would kind of direct this to you, Mr. DeStop, because I know you worked on the case. But what intelligence? We have four messages. A 5 February message, immediate precedence message, in which a Vietnamese supply and movement unit requested orders from its superiors as to what to do about the four pilots it was holding captive. Just to note here, that message that was intercepted, again, was actually, uh, you're going to hear here in a few minutes where Mr. DeSant with the DIA misspeaks and says it was like 45 minutes after the uh, crash, when in fact it was actually over five hours. That's the content of the message. Uh, it is a radio message, um, and I won't go into the specifics, but you know what it is. A 5 February priority precedence message sent 22 hours later. There's some discrepancy on the date. It may have been the 6th of February, but in any case, it was 22 hours later, in which a different Vietnamese supply and movement unit reported that it had four pirates, which it said were being moved. It also reported having difficulty moving the pirates along the ground. The report contains a footnote to the word pirates, which reads, usually American pilots. In other words, the footnote on the message says pirates are usually American pilots, referred to. A 17 February 1973 immediate precedence message from a Vietnamese anti-aircraft unit that indicated it had received a report that, quote, the people involved in the South Laotian campaign have shot down one aircraft and captured the pilots. It asked that Vietnamese units recover pieces of the aircraft immediately. And finally, there's a detailed 2 May 1973 recap, quote, unquote, of the reporting on this subject. And I'll return to this in just a second. But let me just, other relevant information. As far as we know, no other aircraft was reported lost after the peace accords in February, except this aircraft where individuals were known to be alive. There was one, I believe, where the people were killed. Or not known, let me take that back. There is no other aircraft ca crash where, uh, where, where uh, uh, bodies uh, were not all recovered. On 22 February 1973, the U.S. Air Force declared the crew of the EC-47 killed. Killed in action, body not recovered. That's two weeks after four mess three messages were received saying that the pilots uh, were in hostile hands. On 21 May 1973, a DIA memo indicates that Dr. Shields, the head POW person at the Pentagon, spoke with a DIA analyst concerning this incident. The DIA position given to Shields was, quote, since the men are listed as KIA, our interest in pursuing the subject is academic in that we're not attempting to force Air Force to bring the men back to life, unquote. 24 May 1973, and Dr. Shields has been deposed by the committee, Shields wrote a memo to the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Larry Eagleburger, in which he stated a short time after the shootdown of the EC-47, a sensitive intercept of communication between North Vietnamese Army commands in Laos and the DRV indicated that four Americans had been captured in an area some 40 miles from the crash site. 
This is the Shields memo in which he questioned the accuracy or, or inaccuracy of his 12 April 73 press statement that no U.S. personnel were alive and held prisoner in Southeast Asia. He questioned his own statement. DIA documents in the 80s list four crew members as possibly captured. DIA documents list four crew members possibly captured. These are lists printed from the DIA database over a decade ago. We had an affidavit from Jer This is just in a way of providing some supporting evidence. Some believe it, some don't. Point is, it is an affidavit by Jerry Mooney, former NSA expert on air defense uh, traffic for Southeast Asia, uh, which he released in January 86, states four of the crew survived and were captured by the North Vietnamese in Laos, and he affirmed that the an analysts concurred at the time in this conclusion, obviously referring to the same messages that I just referred to. I also have a 20 February 1987 DIA an an analysis of the EC-47 shootdown in which DIA stated there is no intelligence whatsoever no intelligence whatsoever, which would indicate any of the crews survived the incident of loss. Finally, in sworn testimony before this committee, in November of 1991, DIA senior analyst Mr. Bob DeStott stated, quote, over the years, there has grown the impression that we had evidence that some members of that crew survived. In fact, the careful analysis of the information that led to that impression repeat, reveals that the information did not pertain to that crew, and there's never been any evidence that any members of that crew survived, unquote. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I just would like to take advantage of the opportunity um, while Mr. Desad is here uh, and, and then move to the other uh, cluster. Uh, did... Did you write, first of all, did you write the 87 analysis, Mr. DeStott? Yes, I did. And in that analysis, um, it, it says that the initial February 5 report came from Vinh in North Vietnam, some 240 miles from the crash site in Laos. And this is described as a spot report, unevaluated and issued almost as soon as intercepted. The sending priority of the message confirms that it was such a spot report. But the next message provided no additional insights, according to Mr. Destat, into the identity of the prisoners. I'm using your memo. The 17 February 73 document, Mr. Destat claims, does not relate to the EC-47 or its crew. The 2 May report is described as another analyst's interpretation of the 5 February reporting and contains no new information. It's not a new report, said Mr. Destat, and it contains unwarranted personal speculation and a number of arbitrary and erroneous assumptions and speculative assertions. I've looked at these documents, every one of them, read them five times last night. I just don't see where they match your sworn testimony to this committee last November. And uh, uh, I let me say why I think it doesn't match, and then I want you to respond. Mr. DeStott's 87 analysis states that the initial report is an unevaluated spot report. I understand what spot reports are. They have a follow-up to correct errors that occurred in the interest of speed of transmission. That's what the 2 May 1973 memo is. The authoritative follow-up analysis officially issued by the originating intelligence agency. Mr. DeSat said it contained no new information, generally wrote this off as not relevant to EC-47. But is that the case? The message states that it's a review of all available information concerning the four flyers and publishes information not published anywhere else nor mentioned in any earlier messages. So if it's not in any earlier message, it's not been published anywhere else, where do you get the content of your memo unless there's some other document we haven't seen? It's a total review. Careful analysis of this message corrects the earlier reports as to key events. 
First of all, it locates the flyers in Binh Tran, 33 Vietnamese supply and movement unit, the uh, Binh Tran 33, rather, Vietnamese supply and movement unit in Laos. The earlier unevaluated reports do not mention this unit. Second, it establishes the linkages among three Vietnamese supply and movement units that are involved in moving four flyers up the Ho Chi Minh Trail from Laos to Vinh in North Vietnam. Third, this report clarifies terms such as kilometer markings that in the agency headquarters in Washington uh, knew, but the field units were not certain of. And four, in the review message, Vinh is the destination, the destination of the pilots. Vietnamese authorities are waiting for them there. This is the only message that contains this information which explains the original unevaluated 5 February spot report. And fifth, the 2 May message contains not previously published information on difficulties of movement of those flyers, specifically the need to provide water to the flyers. And sixth, it contains not previously published information on dialogue between the units to ensure the movement of the flyers. So it contains several essential pieces of information that are not reflected in the prior reporting. So Mr. DeStott's analysis in 87 shows no recognition or appreciation of these facts at all. So he, Mr. DeStott asserts that the 2 May review report that concludes that the flyers are part of the crew of the downed EC-47 is a single analyst interpretation and unwarranted speculation. In his analysis, he says the people identified prisoners, quote, unquote, but that's not accurate. Unidentified prisoners, that's not accurate. The reports call them pilots, pirates, or flyers, making unmistakable that this is part of an air crew in the belief of the 1973 analysts, including DIA analysts. The collectors said as much in a footnote on one of the February 5 reports. Now, who believed that there was evidence that any member of the EC-47 crew survived and were captured? The answer is no one shared Mr. DeStott's interpretation of this evidence. Everyone believed that these messages which correlate almost to the minute of the crash were evidence that four crew members may have survived. NSA officers believed it. DIA analysts believed it. DIA supervisors believed it. And the head POW officer and the officer of the Secretary of Defense believed it, Dr. Roger Shields, who only last month testified to that effect before this committee. Mr. Mooney swore before this committee that this was not only his belief but that of his organization, which approved and disseminated the reports. Other colleagues of Mr. Mooney in sworn testimony before this committee have affirmed Mr. Mooney's statements that analysts at the time did not believe that all crew members had been killed. Mr. Mooney swore that the, the, that the DIA analysts concurred with that. So the May 23, DIA May 73, 23 May 73 memo from John T. Burbage, a very senior DIA officer, now indicates that it was the position of the DIA that there was a possibility that crew members survived. I have that memo. Dr. Shields of the Office of Secretary, Assistant Secretary of Defense believed that the official DOD position needed to be changed because of the sensitive intercepts indicating, in his words, quote, that four Americans had been captured in an area some 40 miles from this site. Now, let me go back and ask you to respond, Mr. DeStott. You said under sworn testimony, and I want to repeat what you said, over, quote, over the years, there has grown the impression that we had evidence that some members of that crew survived. In fact, a careful analysis of the information led to that impression reveals that the information did not pertain to that crew. There's never been any evidence that any members of that crew survived, unquote. Response. So you've given you an awful lot to respond to. Uh... I think we can break it down into three broad categories. One are the facts of the case, and 
I'm sure inadvertently, but some of the some of the uh, basic facts in the case, as you stated them, were incorrect. Second uh, area uh, of concern is what intelligence uh, did we actually have? And again, uh, I'll address that. And the, th and the third and very important question is why did so many people believe that we had more intelligence than we in fact had? And I think I'll address that finally. But let me begin by just uh, by pointing out the basic fact. This whole process began with a single report. And that report consisted of a single sentence, one sentence. That's, and the analyst, as you've identified him, Jerry Mooney, in one of his pieces of correspondence acknowledged that that was the only, the sole source of information upon which this whole uh, exercise was, uh, was based. Through a, in the end, speculation well, and rumor. Was, what was the one sentence? That one sentence, uh, uh, unfortunately, sir, the, I, I don't have an unclassified version of that sentence here. But basically, that, that, that sentence, the sentence uh, was to the effect that uh, there were four, let me see if I can, I made a quick, quick note on that. Uh, there were four pilots that were being taken to, and they, were, they identified... Uh, uh, a location or organization by uh, a, a number, uh, and that was basically it. Uh, th that was the the first report and it was uh, issued 46 minutes after that aircraft went down. Okay, that is not correct. The actual message was issued uh, again greater than five hours after the aircraft went down. The uh, as Mr. Smith pointed out, there were eight crew members on that aircraft. On 9 February, a search team did inspect the aircraft. The team members saw remains of four crew members in the, in the wreckage, but were able to recover partial remains of only one of those crew members. They did not recover the remains of four people. The uh, search team found no indications that there were survivors. On the 22nd of February, 1973... What about the parachute issue and seat issue that Senator Smith... Uh, that's a very good... Very, very good point, and there's been a lot of misleading information on that. I have uh, a question that came up during our last, uh, the last time we discussed this was was the condition of that uh, of the uh, the wreckage. Uh, we were given the impression uh, that uh, that there was evidence that, that aircraft was sitting upright, uh, largely intact. And if if uh, uh, if you don't mind, I have uh, a few sets of photographs here that were taken. Uh, Two days after the crash and four days after the crash, the later uh, the later date by the people who actually went down on the wreckage, and it shows the condition of that wreckage. And I'd like to share it with these with the, uh, the members of the panel. Those photographs were taken by a hovering helicopter. Sure, I I understand that, and I. And for the record, what is the condition of that wreckage? For the record, uh, for the condition, uh, for the record, that aircraft appeared to go straight down, bounced once, landed upside down, and, and burned. It had five hours of fuel on board. Another question that came up during our last discussion, I'm taking these, these points out of, out of sequence, but another point that we discussed at some length during our last meeting was whether there were explosives, uh, explosive charges on board that aircraft. I'm told by uh, General Clapper, who flew those missions, that uh, 
there were no, they did not have explosives on board that aircraft, and in fact, that would have been uh, uh, dangerous. As he points out, there's no uh, air conditioning in the back of the aircraft. The uh, electronic equipment in the back of that aircraft, while it's warming up on the uh, the runway, generates temperatures upwards of 130 degrees, and to have explosives on board would be uh, it, at those temperatures would be a uh, uh, safety ground safety hazard. The most sensitive items on board that aircraft were paper products. Intentionally, the paper products were water soluble, and the destruction scheme was uh, to use the drinking water. The crews drink to to uh, pardon me to uh, put those paper products in the crews drinking water to destroy it. Military pragmatism at its best, but no explosives. Let me just keep asking a couple questions. We we saw when we were in Hawaii, we saw the blow up pictures of this, and we were uh, out at uh, sink back, and they gave us a briefing on it. But uh, I want to ask him a couple questions. Senator Smith said there were apparently the four back seats were not seats were not buckled and no parachutes were there. Is that was that a determination that was made? No, sir, it's not. And if if uh, and if, if I may, I can take uh, take us through that uh, uh, this this uh, incident point by point, and I think I'll show uh, quite conclusively that uh, how the the. Uh, the incident occurred and how the misunderstanding about the intelligence uh, uh, came about. Now that aircraft, uh, as uh, Senator Smith points out, it had the uh, the mission of uh, locating People's Army of Vietnam uh, units moving on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The uh, aircraft normally flew its missions at speeds of 120 to 150 knots not exceeding 150 knots or miles per hour at altitudes that were approximately 5,000 feet above the mountainous terrain of southern Laos. In other words, the speeds and altitude were well within the range of each of the anti-aircraft weapons employed by communist forces in Southeast Asia. The uh, aircraft did not receive any flight restrictions for the particular mission, thus it could and indeed did choose to fly outside of its assigned uh, area subject to customary coordination with the Airborne Command and Control Center that was uh, aloft at the time and other aircraft operating in that uh, area and adjacent areas. As was customary for, the, for aircraft operating in Laos, Baron 52 had frequent communication with the Airborne Command and Control Center uh, and other aircraft that were flying in uh, their assigned area and adjacent operational areas. For example, the aircraft commander made routine half-hourly radio contacts with uh, and reported all unusual occurrences to Moonbeam Aircraft Command and Control Center and was in radio contact with other air aircraft in the area. The electronics aircraft crew members also used separate communication equipment to maintain contact with other EC-47 aircraft and with another EC-47 aircraft, Baron 62, which was flying in the same general area. In addition to Baron 52's frequent radio contact with other aircraft during its flight, each crew member carried a survival radio preset to operate at emergency frequency uh, in the event of an emergency, and the crew members received intensive training on, uh, in emergency procedures. And these points become, uh, uh, I think, quite relevant as we go through this. Aircraft operating in, in the, their assigned area, which uh, uh, I have, uh, unfortunately, we don't have it depicted on that map there, but it's... Uh, uh, north uh, of Atipu and in, in, uh, east of Siobhan. The uh, uh, 
that uh, that particular area, uh, aircraft operating in that area frequently are outside of the range of U.S. ground control radar stations in Thailand and South Vietnam. The nearest radar stations were Lion, which was at Udon, pardon me, Ubon, Thailand, and Panama, which was at Da Nang, South Vietnam. At 23.05 hours local time, 4 February, Baron 52 departed Ubon. At 0010 hours local time on 5 February, the aircraft commander was in communication with Spectre 20 and AC-130 from the 16th Special Operations Squadron. They agreed that Baron 52 would fly in the southern portion of their assigned area and Spectre 20 would fly in the northern portion. At 0039 hours, Lion radar station recorded its last radar plot of Baron 52. Aviators who have experience flying in this area estimate that this would be the near near the outer range of this for this station, beyond which Baron 52 would not be visible to this station's ground radar. The time elapsed since takeoff from Ubon and the distance from Ubon also were consistent with the normal speed of this aircraft. At 1.25 hours local time, Baron 52 informed Moonbeam Airborne Command and Control Center that several rounds of anti-aircraft artillery were fired at Baron 52, uh, and it gave the coordinates. Baron 52 was not hit. At 0130 hours local, Baron 52 reported operations normal to the Moonbeam Airborne Command and Control Center. There's no record that Baron 52 reported its location at that time. And as noted above, Baron 52 apparently had been beyond the range of Lion radar since 0039. At 0140 hours local time, Baron 52 was at its last reported location, and I have the coordinates here. As noted above, Baron 52 was in radio contact with several different aircraft during its mission, including Spectre 20, Moonbeam, Airborne, and Airborne uh, Command and Control Center, and another EC-47 aircraft, Baron 62. Although some documents refer to this as the last radar contact, this last reported location appears to have been reported during Baron 52's last radio contract with, contact with Baron 62, in which Baron 52 reported it had been fired on by, quote, radar-controlled 47s, unquote. Uh, uh, and that uh, apparently is a... Uh, I, I believe they did not, that's a misnomer, they did not have 47-millimeter anti-aircraft guns, but it would have been either 37 or 57. It should be noted at this point that Baron 52 was directly over the main north-south artery of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, near its junction with the main east-west artery that led into northern Kantum Province, South Vietnam, or what we also know as B3 Front. At 02... At 0200 hours, Baron 52 failed to make its scheduled radio contact with Moonbeam Airborne Command and Control Center. Lion and Panama Ground Control Radar Facilities, Moonbeam Air Airborne Command and Control Center, and other aircraft tried unsuccessfully to contact Baron 52 on guard frequencies and secure communications. Search and rescue operations were initiated at 2.15 hours local time. Within 20 minutes, three F-4 aircraft, Spectre 20 and Baron 62, were diverted to assist Moonbeam and Lion in Panama ground control facilities to conduct visual and communication searches for Baron 52. Additional aircraft joined the search as they, these efforts continued through the remaining hours of darkness on 5 February and into the following days. 
On 7 February 73, SAR aircraft located the wreckage of Baron 52, and it gives the coordinates, and that's one of the photographs you have there. It was taken on 7 February. This location was about 20 nautical miles, or approximately 8 to 10 minutes flying time, north of Baron 52's last reported location, indicating Baron 52 crashed about 10 to 12 minutes before its next radio contact, scheduled radio contact with Moonbeam Airborne Command Control Center. In view of speculation by some analysts concerning the flight path of Baron 52 and the possibility that some crew members might have parachuted some 65 nautical miles north of the crash site, it's important to note, it, note that the facts demonstrate that Baron 52 was flying in a northerly course at the time of its last reported location and probably at the time of the crash. If, however, as some analysts speculated, the aircraft had circled and was returning in a southerly direction when it crashed, it could have never been further north than 6 to 10 nautical miles from the crash site. In other words, if any of the crew members had parachuted from the aircraft, they would have had to have landed with, within a relative close proximity to the crash site, not 65 nautical miles north. On 7 February, aerial photography and visual reconnaissance missions were flown over the crash site. There were no signs of survivors or indications that the aircraft had attempted a crash landing. The aircraft appeared to have fallen to earth, bounced once, landed upside down, and burned. What appeared to be a portion of the tail of the aircraft was located 1 to 400 meters from the main wreckage. On 9 February, a SAR force, a search and rescue force, inserted three pararescue specialists, uh, which I'll hereafter refer to as PJs, from the uh, 40th Air Rescue and Recovery Squadron and a radioman from the 6994th Security Squadron into the crash site to inspect the wreckage of Baron 52. Now, several points should be noted regarding the inspection of the crash site. And this gets to the heart of some of the questions. The crash site was in a hostile area. One or more missiles were launched against the SAR aircraft as they approached the crash site. Several dozen unidentified persons were observed by the SAR force within a short radius of the wreckage, the closest only a few meters away. Although the SAR team was unable to determine if these persons were military or civilian, two regimental-sized PAVN installations, which included anti-aircraft artillery forces, were located within six to nine miles, or about 10 to 14 kilometers, of the crash site. The radioman recalled that he heard gunfire while searching the wreckage. Members of the SAR force theorized that the presence of several armed escort aircraft discouraged people surrounding the persons surrounding the crash site from attacking the SAR team. One PJ and the radio men inspected the wreckage. The other two PJs principally provided security. Approximately 40 minutes elapsed between the time the first PJ descended from the SAR helicopter until the last PJ was lifted back up to the helicopter. Reasons for the brief time included the small size of the search team in a hostile area surrounded by a large number of unidentified persons and the amount of fuel remaining on board the SAR helicopter. The two men who inspected the wreckage spent no more than 15 to 20 minutes on the ground. Much of that time was spent extracting the partial remains of one crew member from the wreckage, placing the remains in a body bag and rigging it for lift by a cable hoist to a hovering helicopter. This effort was hindered by the fact that the remains were badly decomposed and partially pinned under parts of the wreckage that were too heavy for the search team to lift. Thus, the, the search team was able to recover only the head and portions of the upper torso. The rear compartment 
was not reduced totally to ashes. As the photographs of the wreckage and the reports by the search team illustrate, significant portions of the aircraft structure remained largely intact, albeit severely damaged or weakened by the intense fire. It should be noted that over four five hours of fuel remained on board when Baron 52 crashed. The search team members did not enter the fuselage of the Baron 52 wreckage. The, person, the reasons included concern for possible booby traps, since there were unidentified persons in the immediate vicinity of the wreckage, and uncertainty about the structural soundness of the wreckage. The PJs con contemplated tying a sling around the fuselage and using the SAR helicopter to lift the wreckage to search for additional remains, but decided that the structure was too weakened by the fire and would not stand the strain. Time constraints undoubtedly also influenced this decision. The radio man's principal task was to ensure that the classified documents and equipment on board Baron 52 were destroyed. His secondary function was to search for evidence of survivors or remains. He had long experience as a crew member of an EC-47Q missions over Laos and was immediately, pardon me, and was intimately familiar with the Baron 52 aircraft. He was personally acquainted with the four electronics warfare specialists seated in the back of the Baron 52 aircraft. The PJs who inspected the crash site were specialists whose function was to search for and recover survivors or remains and to determine the cause of the crash. The SAR team concluded that all members of the Baron 52 crew perished in the crash. Several observations by the SAR team should be noted. The PJs who inspected the wreckage found the remains of four crew members. Two were in the pilot and co-pilot seats, respectively. The third was in the engineer's compartment behind the pilot's cabin. The SAR team recovered portions of this body, which was confirmed to be the second co-pilot. The fourth body was located near the engineer's compartment. It should be noted that the port and starboard crew positions immediately behind the engineer's compartment were occupied by two of the electronics technicians. Todd Melton, Staff Sergeant Todd Melton, and either Sergeant uh, Joseph Matijov or Sergeant Peter Cressman. There were five positions in the area behind the engineer's compartment, three on the starboard and two on the port side. The starboard position behind the engineer's compartment was occupied by Staff Sergeant Todd Melton. Sergeant Peter Cressman normally occupied the center position on the starboard side, immediately behind Staff Sergeant Melton. Sergeant Dale Brandenburg occupied the rear, rearmost starboard position furthest from the engineer's compartment. The port side position immediately behind the engineer's compartment normally was occupied by Sergeant Joseph Matijov. However, he could exchange positions with Sergeant Cressman. The navigator, Captain Arthur Bollinger, occupied the rearmost portion of the port side near the door of the aircraft. Parts of the aircraft were observed uphill from the main wreckage. The PJs believed other parts of the wreckage might have been in a ravine bordering the crash site. The size of the search team, the presence of unidentified persons in the immediate area, and the short time on the ground prevented them from checking the parts lying uphill from the wreckage or in the ravine. The PJ who inspected the wreckage found what he believed were anti-aircraft artillery shrapnel holes in the skin of the aircraft. The SAR team found no evidence that the aircraft had attempted to make a controlled crash landing. The disposition of the wreckage and other features of the crash site, for example, the absence of skid marks, indicated the aircraft had plunged nearly vertically to earth 
bounced once, landed upside down, and burned. The PJ noted, PJs noted it did not appear that the crew of Baron 52 were preparing to bail out when the plane crashed. On 13 February the, 1973, the commander, 8th Tactical Fighter Wing, wrote to the next of kin of several of the crew members whose remains had not been recovered and expressed his feeling that inasmuch as there was a possibility that one or more crew members could have parachuted to safety, they would continue to be carried in a missing status until final determination could be made. On 20 February 1973, the father of one of the crew members requested that Air Force officials obtain clarification of the wing commander's statement regarding possibility that one or more crew members might have parachuted to safety. On 21 February 1973, a message from the Air Force, United States Air Force Personnel Center citing the inquiry from the next of kin and noting that casualty reports and other information indicated it was doubtful any crew member survived, directed the field commander to carefully evaluate all known information pertaining to the incident to determine appropriate status of the crew members. On 22 February 73, the 56th Special Operations Wing, in coordination with the uh, Commander 8th Tactical Fighter Wing, citing the initial missing in action report on 5 February, and the uh, message of 21 February reported to the uh, Air Force Personnel Center that he had reviewed the available facts and believed that, quote, there is no reasonable doubt that all members of the crew of Baron 52 were killed in the crash. Based on the evidence obtained by the search team and the results of this review, Air Force authorities changed the status of the crew members to killed in action. The Commander 8th Tactical Fighter Wing informed the next of kin of the change in status, facts supporting it in a series of letters dated between 24 February and 17 April 1973. In addition to summarizing the events of Baron 52's last mission and the evidence obtained by the search team that inspected the wreckage, the commander described the several types of radio equipment in, the, in use on the aircraft. He explained the capabilities of this equipment and noted that Baron 52 had frequent radio contact with other aircraft until minutes before it became missing. He also noted that the crew members received intensive training for emergencies. Within this context, context, the wing commander expressed his belief that in case of an emergency, at least one crew member would have instinctively used one of the many pieces of communication equipment that were available to transmit a distress call or to lead rescue forces to his location unless the aircraft crashed as a result of some catastrophic incident that immediately and completely incapacitated the crew members. Now, those, sir, are the facts associated with the mission and the uh, uh, search of the wreckage by the, uh, by the uh, team. Now, as far as the intelligence is concerned, there's a lot of interesting things that could be brought out about it in a, in a secure environment. Unfortunately, we're not in that environment. Uh, so I'll try to limit my remarks to uh, that which uh, uh, can be uh, discussed publicly. Now, as I mo noted earlier, the initial report... Uh, was issued about 46 minutes after the uh, the incident occurred, and according to the uh, again, that's uh, was actually five hours, and this just keeps going through through the whole hearing, to where Senator Kerry and and uh, Senator McCain keep repeating it, and unfortunately, it kind of changes some minds on the case where they're thinking, well, there's no way a crew could have bailed out you know, within 45 minutes and then a message be intercepted 200 miles away. So anyway, uh, back to it. Analytical comment, the analyst comment 
appended to that initial report by the people. By the people who received that, uh, who, who, who made the report, they're the ones, and they're the experts, they're the ones who uh, believe that that, uh, that the location was at Vin, that, that the, the, the PWs being referred to were at Vin. The second report was simply a, a, a one-sentence retranslation of the first report issued about... Uh, well, issued some hours later. I don't. Re I don't have the note here. Uh, Mr. State, could I yeah. interrupt just a second? Uh, I'm, at, I'm at a distinct disadvantage here because I didn't know this case was going to be brought up, and I have no information. So I. I uh, and I regret that because this is very important. This is Senator McCain talking. Situation, obviously. Are you saying that that the second report was a repeat of the first report? Yes, sir. It was simply a, a, a retranslation by a different person. The air. The, the report was originally acquired uh, by a platform uh, uh, flying over the uh, South China Sea. When that, air, when, when, when that platform returned to its base in, in, in Okinawa, the, uh, the original report was, was looked at by a separate person, and uh, uh, he issued a, a different translation of that single sentence. And what was that translation? Uh, that translation uh, changed the word uh, pilot to pirate and added a, a, a clause saying to the effect that uh, these people were, the, the pilots were being, pirates were being moved from 44 to 93. Do you know what 44 and 93 mean? 44 and 93 could be a whole host of things. Now, the uh, Jerry Mooney uh, chose to assume that 44 and 93 were kilometer markers. Uh, my experience, and, and I might add that uh, the first two years plus that I spent in Vietnam, I spent in Vietnam as a communications specialist doing this very sort of work. Uh, and in my experience, uh, both doing that kind of work and uh, as, a, as a, a fairly accomplished linguist, if, this were, if these were kilometer markers, it's virtually certain that they would have to have included the comment kilometer marker. Uh, it's, uh, and uh, I have in my briefcase here uh, a book titled uh, Regulations on uh, uh, staff, Tactical Staff Operations. And in here where they talk about using, it's a Vietnamese publication published by their uh, uh, general staff to a directorate for the People's Army of Vietnam in 1975, relevant, uh, issued by the uh, uh, Institute for Military Studies. And as they point out, if you're going to deal in kilometers, you have to note that it's kilometers because there are so many other uh, options. These, these could be dynamic uh, references to units. They could be dynamic references to locations. They could be uh, uh, dynamic references to radio call signs. It could be any, any assortment of things. But this, this transmission was received 40, was intercepted 46 minutes after the crash. Is that correct? That's correct. The, well, the, the report was issued 46 minutes after. I don't recall the exact time. Uh, but uh, the, the, the requirements were that these... Uh, reports be issued 
this type of report be issued within moments. So approximately 45 minutes after the uh, aircraft went down. So, and that, and that, they believed that that transmission was coming from VIN? That's correct. The people who received the report and issued the report, rather. And how far is that from where the plane crashed? Oh, VIN is, uh, uh, I have it here in my notes. It's marked on this map uh, over here. It's okay. I, I, I can answer the question specifically. Yeah, but, uh, well, I mean, it's a long, long ways. Oh, my goodness, what, yes, sir. Well, my question is, is how is it possible a, a message would originate from VIN concerning a crash that had just taken place a matter of minutes before? In my judgment, it's impossible. And, and we might, uh, while we're on that point, again, let's apply the test of common sense. When we look at, uh, you have the photographs in front of you, uh, based on what, on, on some notations on, and as you can see here, this there were actually 16 photographs. Uh, I, I just pulled some representative ones here. One of the photographs is annotated showing that, uh, that the, uh, uh, and in fact, it may be one of them that you have in front of you. Uh, it's annotated, yes. Uh, the this photograph here that has the north arrow in it uh, shows uh, just the general area. Uh, if you look closely, uh, the, uh, there's an annotation that says bamboo ranges from 8 to 100 feet in height, very uh, thick, uh, pardon me, very difficult to, uh, uh, to move through. Uh, and... Uh, And cause difficulties with the jungle penetrator during insertion of the uh, uh, team on 9 February 1973. That, uh, uh, as you can see from this photograph, this aircraft went down a considerable distance from the very from the nearest uh, footpath. Simply to make your way to this aircraft would take more than four from from the nearest uh, uh, occupied position would take more than 46 minutes. Mr. Destan, I'd like to respond, respond to that. I know we have to move on to the other cluster, and I, I, I do want to say for the record that uh, that I did indicate yesterday uh, publicly uh, that I was going to go to this, and that so it was a matter of record. I, I didn't mean it to be a surprise to any of no, my I, colleagues. I, I did not. I, I'd like to respond to my friend. I didn't... Uh, know that and it's my fault not to well, no, that's all right. not I'm just to, saying I just want to I didn't want to didn't mean to uh, to catch anybody by surprise but, but can I just ask a quick question so we're clear are you finished Mr. Stoddard did you have uh, no there were there uh, Mr. Smith raised four four separate reports and he questioned the uh, uh, how we arrived at the judgments that we arrived at on it okay as I, as I pointed out the, the the second report in fact was not a second report it was simply a retranslation of the first report it was also one and only one sentence well it contained new information the, uh, in the second report it contained different information uh, new information Additional information. Uh, no, sir. Those are your words. That's a, it's an analyst assessment. In my judgment, it was different information. And, and uh, as a person who has done translations and who worked in that environment for a number of years, uh, I have no, no way of knowing whether the person who made the original translation was the more experienced or the person who made the, uh, uh, the translation on the ground hours later was the more experienced. I do know that uh, the translations frequently... Uh, uh, are uh, well. Let, let me. Uh, I know. Let, let me. Let me just give you one personal example. Uh, back in 1970, 
One of our ranger teams went into the demilitarized zone. They found a telephone uh, line. And uh, they suggested it be tapped. And the people who do that for a living thought that that was uh, not an appropriate use of their personnel. So I went down uh, to the PX and bought a tape recorder. And uh, we rigged up the, uh, bought as many batteries as they had in that uh, very basic PX. And we went back in with the ranger team and we tapped that phone line. And we, uh, when we ran out of uh, tape, we came back. And then uh, I spent the night... Uh, that evening and the rest of the night with uh, two of my interpreters making a verbatim transcript of the uh, what we, we picked up on that, uh, that uh, telephone wiretap. Uh, the people who do this for a living, of course, <laughs> wanted to take that, uh, that material from me. Uh, and it took them all night to finally get somebody to order us to turn it over. We did. Uh, they came down a few days later uh, to quarrel with us about the translation. There was a section in there where I pointed out that the, uh, the uh, telephone at the southern end of that line, which was in South Vietnam, was sitting on top of... A, it was very precise. Uh, well, let me, do, let me describe it differently. That, that was a telephone line linking uh, an observation post, a Pavan observation post, on the southern side of the DMZ overlooking a major U.S. combat base. The northern end was at... Uh, associated with B-5 front headquarters on the north side of the DMZ. And there was a segment in there with a conversation that went something like this. Uh, one voice came on and, and asked the fellow on the southern end if he could guess who it was. Well, they had a little good-natured banter. The guy in the south couldn't figure out who the voice was. And finally, he told him, well, my name is whatever it was, Nguyen. And, and then it turns out that uh, they were boyhood friends from the same home village. So the guy on the north side then asked him, what the devil are you, where are you at? What the devil are you doing? And he said, well, I'm on the rabbit. And he asked, what, well, what do you mean by on the rabbit? And he said, well, you know, the rabbit uh, hill. And then he gave the high point number for the hill. And uh, so the guy on the north end says, well, what the devil are you doing down there? And so he described to him, I'm sitting in the, uh, the little draw on the northeast or northwest side of the, uh, the hill just below the peak. And I'm overlooking uh, combat base Umpty Ump. And my pur purpose here is to observe movements in and out of there so that we can direct uh, artillery and, and, and mortar f and uh, rocket fire uh, on the U.S. Uh, troops in the area. Now, uh, I was familiar with the, uh, the term for that hill as the rabbit because I'd talked to a lot of Pavan personnel who worked that area, and the silhouette of that hill on their maps suggested a silhouette of a rabbit. Anyway, the folks who, who received this tape from me came back to quarrel because in their, their translators told them that the, that segment of tape said nothing more than, I saw a rabbit. And they suggested that maybe I needed to look at my, uh, check my interpreter's credentials because they seemed to have manufactured a lot of information. At that point, I shared with them the verbatim transcript we made of it. They took their tapes back and they, they came back later and apologized and said, thank you very much. Well, the point of that story is that, uh, that there, there are considerable differences in talent and capability on the part of interpreters. So I'm not just leaping to a conclusion when I say that this was different information rather than new information. Let, we don't know why it was different. Let, let, me, just, let, let me just ask a, a, a couple of points on that because I know we have to move on. The reason that I brought it up, the EC-47, was because I think it relates to what we're trying to establish in terms of analysis, in terms of how you and I use it as a case study to try to determine how you come to the conclusions that you come to. Now, the, 
that that's that's the purpose of it. Now, when you say in uh, before the committee um, at the last in the last testimony, ninety um, whenever that date was, and you were here in July or whatever date it was, when you were asked if there's any evidence that anybody uh, survived the EC forty seven incident, and you say there is no evidence now. I'm just asking you, as a point of definition, why is a radio message not evidence? Are if the radio message, in fact, referred to this crew, then it would be evidence. But this radio message has nothing to do with this particular well, crew. Well, okay. And, and, and I'll, let, I'll get to... Let, let, me, let me just okay. follow, and then let I'll... Let me, let me, let me, let me, well, let me just... You are going to say why it has nothing? Yeah... The assumption is that the only aircraft that were down, the only, the only potential candidates for this were the crew of the... the uh, uh, EC-47 crew. Well, there, there in fact were, were at least three Arvin helicopters that were down in an area that would have caused the crew, if captured, to be evacuated through Ving at the approximate time frame the, of, of uh, this particular, that we acquired this particular piece of intelligence. And in fact, a personal friend of mine who was an, uh, a, an air, uh, a, a pilot in the Vietnamese Air Force uh, is aware of a friend of his who was uh, the pilot of one of those helicopters. He is aware that that friend, in fact, was captured with his crew and was moved to North Vietnam. Now, we're in the process right now of trying to locate, uh, to determine if, uh, if any member of that crew uh, survived captivity and is here in the United States. And if I, I know, can find them, we may have an answer to who this message really refers to. But the point, is, the point is, at the time you drew this conclusion, you didn't have that information. So what I'm saying is there is no other aircraft missing. We discussed the one that went down and the people were killed. There's no other aircraft missing in the area like this. I'm not disputing any of the facts that you gave me, the, the outline that you gave me on the, on the crash and what happened. I don't dispute those facts. I have no, no quarrel with any of that. But what I, what I am trying to get at here is... You, is, is you get a radio message, you, the message is self-explanatory. That's what it says and what it says. Then you start doing analysis on it. That's, there's nothing about VIN in the message. There's nothing about VIN 240 miles away in the message. That's an analysis. That came later. The message itself speaks for itself. It says for... The initial message. You, you noted that the, uh, that the second version of that message contained a footnote. Uh, I'm, I feel confident that the uh, the version uh, uh, that you have the version of the first version of that it. message. I can't read it. And uh, read and it, it also I contains am. a footnote. And that that footnote from the people who issued the report said that it came from Ben. I know in their judgment. Wouldn't it have been Wouldn't it have been more honest to say to the committee when we asked you if there was evidence if anybody survived Baron Fifty Two a few months ago when you testified? Wouldn't it have been more honest to say we had a radio transmission? We didn't believe the radio transmission or whatever you, whatever you're at. But, but we think we also examined the crash site and we found that we didn't have any, based on the people who are at the site, we don't think anybody survived and here's why. You didn't in, say that. You said there's in, no evidence, Mr. Impl Desai. Implicit, implicit in your, your statement is the assumption that, that I don't believe this radio transmission. It's also implicit that I, th that, uh, that uh, there's confirmed evidence that, uh, Everybody else believed it. Well, and, 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 and as I pointed out earlier, as I noted earlier, well, I, that's a, that's a topic that I wish to address, and uh, you know, as 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 we progress through this, but uh, I believe that radio transmission. It simply does not relate in any way to the this particular incident. It who, does not relate it, to this EC forty seven coup. It could possibly be. I don't know who it is, but it could possibly be. 
the the members, the crew members of of one of those three Arvin aircraft uh, helicopters. Now that's assuming were they missing forty five minutes that's a, within four, were they missing within forty five minutes of the time? That as I, as I noted earlier, it's physically impossible. It strains credulity beyond beyond what's reasonable to assume that any PAVN unit could have reached that crash site, captured those four, uh, any four people from that particular incident, and had a radio transmission we don't confirming they, that, passing through VIN 46 minutes after that, uh, that aircraft went all, down. First of we don't know if they were at the crash. If they, if they were at the crash and died, yes, but we didn't find any bodies, so we don't know if they parachute out because we didn't, found any, we didn't find any parachutes. So we, we don't know what happened to them. That's the point. We really don't know. And I can't, I mean, to me, to, for you to say that there were other aircraft missing, and you can't tell me who they are or how many people were on them, uh, how many years later, 20 years later, you're telling me that there are other airport aircraft missing in that area, and it was within that 45-minute period that this message was reported. I mean, that's outrageous. Well, well, let, let me quote from the uh, uh, a letter written by the commander on the spot as to whether or not there was indications that people had bailed out of that. This man was, was much closer to the scene than, 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 than I am uh, from, from this location in time. I'd like to know who the aircrafts were. Please continue, Mr. Okay. Uh, I'll just extract from, uh, let's see, let me, let me find the relevant portion here. Can I just clarify a couple of things while you may be looking at it? Yes. Um, in Senator Smith's summary of the thing originally, it was stated that there were no parachutes and found and the buckles of the seats were undone. Was that found? In the back of this plane, was there an examination for parachutes? Uh, sir, they were not able to get into the into the rear of the aircraft. But uh, if, if uh, well, is there anywhere with your, where they cited the buckles? Yes, with your indulgence, I'll, I'll I'll find the specific passage in here where the commander on this uh, in the field uh, noted the you know that made note of that particular uh, um, concern. Well, Mr. Well, let, me, let me just ask you. I mean, isn't that significant? If if the seats are unbuckled, oh, well, in, no in fact, in, in fact, the, the commander on the spot said just the reverse. And that, but I wanted to quote directly. Well, that's what from I'm trying him. to get at. Did Ron Schofield say that? Did Mr. Sco Ron Schofield say that? Do you know who Ron Schofield is? I know who Ron Schofield is, and Did I spoke to Ron Schofield. And, and and since you raised Ron Schofield, uh, we'll get to, we'll get to the to, to, to the uh, the issue that I had hoped to save for last. Why did so many people believe this? Ron Schofield told me. Can we? Well, can, let's slow down. Yeah. Let's slow down. Who's Ron Schofield? Uh, Ron Schofield is the radio man who accompanied the three parajumpers uh, onto the crash site. Uh, Ron Schofield, uh, when I spoke with him, was uh, an E-9, which is the highest enlisted grade uh, in the armed forces, uh, with the Air Force Security Service, at that point serving in, in England. So he, he was, was present helpful. when the team went in to look at this He was site. part of the team. He, he was, was one of the on four the members. That's correct. Okay. And what did he say regarding this? Okay. I've quoted earlier the observations of the four team members. He concurred that, yes, that, in fact, was his, his judgment. I think somewhere in our files I have his statement that was made, written statement that was made and signed at the time of the incident. It was his judgment at the time, on 9 February, that there was absolutely no chance of any survivors. But as a result of the messages, now, and, and it's important to understand what these messages are. We talk about the NSA message, NSA reports. NSA 
the the kind of traffic that that uh, the cable traffic that would come out of NSA can be divided in, uh, uh, relevant to the issue we're talking about is is divided into two broad categories. There is a finished product, something that goes through their review and quality control process. There is another type of message, which is an informal analyst-to-analyst -analyst communication, a, a, a mechanism that, that, that affords the analyst an opportunity to share ideas, to bounce ideas off of other analysts. It's all very informal, and it does not go through any, any uh, quality control uh, procedure. It's something that, that's vital to, to uh, uh, a dynamic and, and, and uh, effective analytical process. Uh, when asked... Now, there were a series of these messages that, uh, that uh, flowed between, some of which I was able to recover, that flowed between Jerry uh, Mooney and the uh, uh, Air Force Security Service Command at Kelly Air Force Base. And uh, there apparently was a good deal of that that was shared with the uh, uh, 6994th uh, Squadron out there in, 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 uh, in Thailand. Now, the message traffic... This message traffic, all of which was informal, analyst-to-analyst -analyst musings in which uh, Jerry Mooney then uh, took this toothpick and built it into a house, uh, taking this one sentence and building it into that page-and-a-half message that we see on 2 February, all of that was informal traffic. That was something that circumvented the quality control process that existed at, at uh, NSA. That represents one man's musing. It does not... There was no effort... Because of the uh, now, well, let me come back to but back to Schofield. I'm sorry, I, I lost track of where we went. Now, uh, he said that he told me that that when they began receiving these messages out of NSA, his confidence in what he at that time thought was an NSA product represent. He was con so confident in the integrity of of, of that traffic coming out of their headquarters that he was willing to to overrule his own personal observations and try to find in his own mind ways to explain how he could have how he could have misinterpreted the evidence that he saw in front of him when he was on the cra on the ground uh, once he had learned that in fact there, there was, was nothing but that one sentence then he realized that his original judgment in fact had been correct okay now let me come back for a minute the original judgment was based on their looking at the crash site and the material. Now, as I looked at these photographs, I mean, I'm trying in this non-blowed-up section to determine what's left here, but, but a lot of the plane just seems to be disintegrated and burnt. That's correct. So there's not really much capacity to look. I mean, you can't see a seat. There's no seat left. In, in the back, there was... In, in the front, they were able to make out some... Uh, uh, Senator Kerry, I think a critical point is to well, know... No, I want to just pursue this a minute. What was left in the back? In the part back? Of the, part of the fuselage? Yes. Uh, were there identifiable seats in the back? Could they nothing see Nothing. They were not able to see in there. It's my understanding. Based so they made no determination as to seat belts or parachutes? In the back, that's correct. However, they so did where determine... where does this come from? Where they did. I don't know. They they made no determination. Can I ask Senator Smith. I'm sorry. I didn't where that comes from? Well, in your opening statement, you said that the seatbelts were unbuckled, and that the parachutes were not there. Yes. Uh, now that seems to indicate something. Uh, and they're saying. Interior. Here, here's. Tell. 
Here's a letter dated. Uh, it had to come from those people who were on the on the. It came from the people who were on on site. Here's a letter dated 17 April 1973, signed by Colonel Humphreys, who is the commander of. Uh, uh, this Air Force unit out there, and I quote, interrogation of the pararescue team revealed that partial remains discovered in the aircraft were strapped into the seats, strapped into the seats, normally occupied by the pilot and the two co-pilots. It is unrealistic to assume that these remains were those of any other members of the crew. What about the other area of the plane? They were unable to get into the back of the aircraft. So they saw nothing and made no observations of seats or air... Is there any recordation of seat belts and parachutes? None. Can I add a, a sort of a common sense piece of information here? Senator McCain's a flyer. Perhaps he can uh, amplify on what I'm about to say. Here, here we have an aircraft that is flying in a, in a uh, controlled airspace with, with uh, an airborne control uh, uh, monitoring unit, another collector, similar collector, another aircraft in the immediate area, constant radio checks back and forth. He, he reports one time that he's seen some, some tracers go by. This is at night, okay? And then we don't hear anything more from him. He fails to make a radio check. Pilot's flying along in an area like that, and he takes anti-aircraft fire. He's going to say, I've been hit. You know, and, and if he's losing altitude or he's losing power, he's going to say, we're going to have to bail out. We're bailing out. You didn't get any of that. When you look at this picture, what you have is a plane that fell like a stone. Straight vertical dive down. It hit one time. It flipped over on its back and caught on fire. A C-47, my father flew in C-47s in World War II, that's an air flew over the hump in the Himalayas. That's an aircraft that you don't get out of very easily in level flight, let alone a vertical dive in an aircraft that's that's lost its ability to fly. Four guys are wearing beepers. Everybody's wearing beepers. It's alleged here by Senator Smith that uh, four guys could have gotten out of the aircraft. They're wearing. I didn't allege anything. Well, well, I used the facts. Okay. I used your radio messages. I didn't allege uh, anything. Well, I'm not sure where that came from. We're not able to find it. But let's let's just say four guys got out of the aircraft. They're all trained in 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 escape, evasion, and rescue. They're all wearing beepers. One of the beepers maybe didn't work. Sure, two possible, three unlikely. All four never heard from. Very unlikely. Uh, you know, if, if you look at the facts surrounding this case, I think you have, to, you have to come to a position that it would have been extremely difficult for men to have bailed out of an aircraft that's, that's falling vertically in, in an in increasing speed and impacts on the ground, flips over one time and burns. Mr. Sheets, I don't, I don't dispute that. I, I'm not a flyer, but I don't dispute any of that. All I'm trying to point out is in terms of analysis, let me just this way quickly. An EC-47 is lost at a given day, 5 February 1973. Forty-five minutes later, a radio transmission is received, okay? There are no other aircraft in the area that have been lost in that period of time, in that 45-minute period of time. There are four bodies, eight people on the aircraft, four bodies are recovered, four are not. All of the things you say make sense as far as what, whether people didn't get out, beepers. I don't dispute any of it. I'm just saying when a question is asked... And we look at the facts and a question is asked by a witness before this committee, is there any evidence? And you say no. I think that is very, very misleading, if not downright being dishonest. Well, with I the understand committee. the senator's and point. And I think you have to express 
What I, when we're trying, we're an oversight committee. We're trying to find out how you analyze data. And when I see that kind of response to questions that I'm trying to analyze data, I frankly don't know what to believe or what to, when you guys, so all I'm saying to you is you not only, not only, this is not simply a case here where you had no message. This was further than that. You got a message. You got a lot of activity on that message. It went all the way to Secretary Kissinger. That's how far that message went. So, and maybe beyond. So it was not, so, and, and people, as a matter of fact, in the Eagleburger memo, it went so far as to suggest that maybe we ought not to even continue with the bringing home of the, of the American POWs and maybe want to consider resuming the war as a result of this and other information that has been coming up. So this is not a small matter. And for one individual analyst to say before this committee that he himself decides that this is not a valid message when everybody else disagrees and then to you all this all the stuff about the crash if you didn't have the message i fine i don't dispute any of it but you had a message and you don't have any other aircraft missing in the area in that time frame and you haven't explained it to me and then you tell me well maybe if i go back i could find somebody 20 years later that's a little late sir you've are your very, masters very, you're good i give you credit you're you, have, you have you have you, you have very articulately described the the the, the dangers and and uh uh in in, in the tragedy of, of allowing one analyst uh, judgments to go unchecked and uneval, uh, you know, un. Uh, 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 it's an agency judgment. Not uh, an no, sir. The, uh, I beg to differ with you, sir. That what, what we re what we received and what uh, uh, the, the people you have just mentioned have placed so much faith in was what they thought was an agency position, but what in fact was the informal musings of one individual, Jerry Mooney, who sent that message out through a channel that circumvented the normal quality control procedures uh, that, that, that are in place at NSA. And had it been, had it been issued through the normal procedures that it would have made it a, an, uh, an agency position, I am confident that Jerry Mooney's superiors would have asked him to document each of the assertions that he made in that lengthy two-may message, and they would have found that they were unsubstantiated by the facts. Now, that's, that's the lengthy message. What yes, about, that's correct. What about the short message, the, the single-line message that Senator Smith points out gives rise to this issue of where the message comes from within the 45-minute period and how you make a judgment at that point in time about that message without the benefit of the hindsight and the knowledge, so forth, 20 years later. I mean, at the point in time where the crash took place, there's one message that comes out 45 minutes later, correct? That's correct. And that message gets transferred to somebody. To where? It was... Uh, it, was it was intercepted, correct? Yes, sir. And... and uh, relayed? Yes. I spoke with uh, one of the... There were... Uh, Sir, I, I, I fear that, that in order to answer your question adequately, uh, I, I'm going to be very close to getting into, in, in, into, cl into right. classified let, matters. Let, but uh, to, to, to say it in an unclassified way, I hope it is, the, uh, the best evidence we have in terms of where the entity was that, that, that uh, made that report, the initial report that was uh, acquired by our, our services and, and then in turn reported through our channels. The best information we have on that is the analytical comment made by the person who issued our report, the initial report. And, and that person, uh, whoever he was, spelled out the reasons why he believed that that uh, particular entity that was holding the, the, uh, the four uh, in, in that message prisoners uh, 
uh, or p- uh, pilots rather, uh, was, uh, was located in the vicinity of Vin. Uh, and I later was able to track down one of the, uh, one of the two persons who was, a uh, who was aboard that's, he would have been, either he or his colleague would have been the person who actually acquired that, that, that information and, and issued that initial report. And, uh, uh, based on my conversations with him, uh, the uh, I, it simply reinforced the judgments that that uh, are uh, that that uh, are expressed in that analytical comment to the to the message, and that is that the that the uh, that the the uh, information in question in question relates to events that are taking place in the vicinity of Vin, and. Uh, uh, it would be was, dishonest of me to suggest how far otherwise. How far from this crash site? Oh, gosh, that's... Uh, Two hundred and forty miles. Uh, I think that's correct. I, I have it written down here somewhere, but uh, unfortunately, I. But is that's there the origin any... of the message. Yes, two hundred and forty miles by road. North that's of the, the origin of the message, Vin. It didn't say the prisoners were there. That's the origin of the message. I beg to differ. You differ with that? Yes, that my recollection is different. I don't have the text in front of me, but my recollection is different. The, uh, but we're still left with we have two versions, two, uh, two different versions of of, uh, of that one sentence, and uh, uh, the. Uh, well, we've got to begin to move on. Yeah, to the, I, I, uh, Senator Smith also mentioned this. Uh, uh, nowhere, nor, nor, nowhere in those, uh, in, in, in either of those versions, is there any mention of uh, of water? Is there any mention of uh, making reports? Uh, uh, mentions of a Mr. Vun and all the other stuff that appears in, in in that two May message. Where where that information was acquired, I have no idea. However, I do know that Jerry Mooney himself, in one of his messages, stated explicitly that that initial report was the only information that he, you know that his analysis was based on so so I'm, I'm left to conclude that uh, that most of the detail in that two Feb- that two may message was was just a fi- it was fiction well, but you said you excuse me I, I, you said that you thought that you believed the message you just didn't i believe yes i believe, believe it was ec 47 that's program. correct um, well then it's not a fiction message no. most of the information in mr mooney's two may message not the original message. Most of the information in, in Mr. Mooney's two May message is fiction, and I am saying that I believe the original, the original message, the original message, is quite probably true. It probably relates to four pilots. Who are they? In my judgment, well, first off, who they are not. They are not members of the EC forty seven Q crew. Well, who are they? If there are no, they players. are probably pilots or airmen from the Republic of Vietnam Armed Forces who are being moved to North, uh, to North Vietnam. And there are several, there are several Arvin aircraft that are down, three of which have a uh, crew of, of, of four and could have had passengers on board, uh, or it could be an amalgam of, of several crews. There are some OV-10s down. There are a number of other aircraft down that have uh, a crew, one, or, one or two crew members on board, but it is not the EC-47 crew, and it would be... Uh, it would be wrong to uh, to assume that the EC-47, that the sole province of, 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 
of candidates for, for that message is the EC-47 crew. There's a very wide province of candidates. When the airplane, if the, there is, I, I take it this area was outside of the airplane's operating area. Oh, yes, sir. Were they still in communication outside of their operating area? I'm not, I don't understand the question. Did, any, did they go out of communication in any way? Was How long the, before they were? Uh, uh, the, oh, the air crew. Uh, the last communication was at, uh, uh, let me double check, but I, I believe. Uh, I seem to recall you said that 10, it was a report uh, of anti-aircraft fire that they made about 10 At 0140. At 0140. So there were uh, there were 20 minutes remaining between the time of the uh, that last report and their next scheduled uh, routine radio check. So there was a 20 minute lapse. And that 20 would minute they, lapse. I'm sorry. During uh, it, the course of the 20 minute lapse, would they have been capable of flying out of radio communication area? No, uh, we can we can take the speed of that aircraft, uh, and uh, we know so that the known location uh, of the crash site, and we can we can make some very definitive judgments they about still the. Still been uh, in communication. Oh yes, certainly with an airborne aircraft where you've got. And they were in fact in communication with an airborne aircraft. That's right. Uh, uh, and two other aircraft, Spectre twenty and Baron sixty two. And did all of those aircraft hear the message with respect to the anti-aircraft fire? Uh, the only thing that's in the record is that it was a, a, a communication between Baron 52 and Baron 62. Okay. Did uh, Baron 62 report hearing any message whatsoever of I'm hit, we're hit, we're going down, we're going to have to bail out, or any None kind of whatsoever. Message? None whatsoever. They just went dead. That's correct. Silent. That's correct. And uh, I don't, I, I was looking for the reference. Is there I, any reason that for secrecy or for any reason at all, they would not have communicated had they been hit and capable of it? Uh, no, sir. As a matter of fact, the uh, the commander in his letters to the next of kin goes into considerable detail about the, the likelihood, the unlikelihood that there would have been no communication. He believes that, believed then that uh, uh, unless there had been some catastrophic incident that caused that aircraft to plummet uh, at high speed, uh, which would have, the, the, the centrifugal forces, I'm uh, extrapolating a little bit here, but the centrifugal forces at work there would have prevented the crew from, from uh, uh, you know, like, well, I, that's a good point. Uh, let me digress for a moment. The crew, in, as, as he points out here, the crew in the back end, the, the four people in question here, uh, for a variety of reasons, do not wear their parachutes while they're in that aircraft. It's hot, it's uncomfortable, and, for, and, and in fact prevents them from, from, uh, from accomplishing their, their assigned mission while they're in that aircraft. And, uh, but now they're trained such that it would, they could, within two minutes, suit up. That's a long time. Uh, they also point out that because of the, the, the altitude, uh, it, it's cold up there, so they, they fly with the back door shut. And it would take another uh, several seconds uh, or a minute to uh, release that door. And if this if this aircraft was uh, was subjected to some catastrophic incident uh, that uh, that caused it to go into an uncontrolled dive, that uh, would have been it would have been easier for the pilot and co-pilot to get out than the than the ones in back. That's correct. And they were found strapped in their seat, according to this comment by the commander. And the suggestion is that, that when the chute is deployed, does the beeper automatically go off? Uh, it, it's my understanding that it uh, that it can be 
either way? You, you, can, you can set it so that it either goes off automatically or not. We don't know in this case. In this case, we don't know. But uh, the commander, again, uh, the man who was responsible for their training, the man who knew these, these, these people the best, uh, he says that, in, in, uh, again, paraphrasing, that in his judgment, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unlikely that at least one of those crew members would not have triggered his, his, communication, his emergency communication device to lead rescue aircraft to them in the event they had gotten out of that aircraft. Can I add another sort of sanity point here? Uh, You've got an aircraft that's, that's down at, uh, uh, at the dead of night in an area that's densely, densely forested, so much so that the search and rescue helicopters that came in had trouble getting their jungle penetrators down through to get the, the, uh, the, the men on the ground to investigate the crash site. Yet, if we were to believe that this report that we think originated from the VIN area pertained to this aircraft, between the time period when... We, the aircraft last failed its radio, or the, failed its radio check, or was last heard from. To the time this message came on the wire, we're talking about literally minutes. And if these men were were to be in captivity, they would have had to been rounded up in the dead of night in an extremely densely packed area. When four guys, if they were to have gotten out of an aircraft, they would have been spread over quite a distance. And and just the. The, the ability of people on the ground first to find the site where the crash occurred, then to round up four guys, and then get a message on the wire in literally minutes, it, it really strains and, 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 to jump, and to jump out of that aircraft, this is not a tactical aircraft where you press a button and, and, well, and it takes everybody you about, goes out. It takes you about an hour to go a quarter of a mile or half a mile, let alone 240 miles. That's correct. And, and, and these people would have also been the very nature of, of, of that aircraft. Uh, to get out of the back, they would have had to jump, physically jumped out the rear of that aircraft one at a time. Uh, they would have been strewn out over, they would have been dispersed over some area, which further complicates the, uh, the, the process of, of locating these four individuals in that time period, in that terrain. And I might add, uh, this isn't an unconfigured cargo C-47. We're talking about one that the back end of it is literally jammed with electronics. Guys have little tiny cubby holes that they've got to work in, uh, receiver stations, and there's a, there's a narrow, narrow little path that they've got to walk down the middle of it. This is an extremely cramped and crowded aircraft. And, and the likelihood of their being able to get out of an aircraft that's in a power dive that's per perhaps spinning out of control when centrifugal forces are at work, strapped into to their, their uh, listening stations to have gotten out of that, to have went up to the rack on the, on the bulkhead, grabbed the parachute, put it on, and gotten out of the aircraft. It, it's, it really strains uh, credulity. And if there was time to do that, there certainly would have been time for somebody on that aircraft to, on to, have, the, to have used to on one the of the radios. Uh, to, to make a mayday call, to, to a stress call. Mr. Chairman, could I just ask one more? I, I know we've been in this. So, Mr. DeState, the reason why you are affirming your previous testimony is because you do not view that message as evidence relating to the crash of the airplane. Is That's that correct. It? Yes, sir. Is, is, it, is it accurate to say that other people do? It's accurate to say that, that other people had a great deal of faith in that two May message that Jerry Mooney published. Uh, and I think it's also, uh, I, I'm, I'm also confident that each of those persons apprised of the, of the full facts on that issue 
would 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 change their view and and i think it's it's truly tragic i think some of those men have have lived all these years with the sincere belief that that here was a good case and it was a good case because they believed nsa said it was a good case they were unaware that sergeant jerry mooney said that it was a good case and that's the only person who said it was a good case that concludes today's uh, stories of sacrifice again we'll have some additional uh, interviews in the in the near future here on our next episodes that will continue with the baron 52 story thank you for listening Till we have